No story is ever the same. Today's guest, Sydney, will be sharing with us all about her IVF success story. It includes military delays, vasectomy reversal, overstimulation, and her refreshing point of view on selfishness and how it can help you get pregnant. So stay tuned. Hey, welcome to the Infertility Makeover Podcast, a podcast that will help you learn and get inspiration from successful IVF stories. Each week, I grab a cup of tea, get cozy in my couch, and have a girls chat with an IVF sister who is or has been successfully pregnant through IVF. We talk about their story and learn their best tips. And always remember that their story can be yours. So stay tuned. So welcome, Sydney. Uh, you're my second guest in the Infertility Makeover uh, podcast. So I wanted to welcome you today and uh, thank you for willing to share your story with us and, you know, give us tips or just uh, chat with us and see. Yeah. I feel like uh, many of us that are going through this fertility IVF journey, uh, we love to hear what those of you successful women have done and hopefully learn something and, and, and have some input for our, our own journey. So thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Awesome, Sydney. So why don't you go ahead and start and give us a little bit of a story or background or how, how you got to this IVF yeah, part yeah. of your life. Yeah, <laughs> the IVF part of my life. Yeah, it's definitely its own chapter. Um, so I will say we have a very straightforward story. Unlike, you know, I, I do follow a lot of groups and um, I, I almost feel guilty. Our story is so direct because we weren't dealing with endometriosis or PCOS. Um, the only thing that we really had to overcome was just dealing with military medicine. And so sometimes I feel a little guilty. Our story is so kind of vanilla, but it's, um, it is what it is. So I met my husband when he was actually stationed in my home state um, with the Marine Corps. And we started dating really serious. And he was up front, like, I've had a vasectomy. And I was like, okay, well, I definitely want more children. So if, if this isn't going to work, um, like if we can't come to like an agreement on this, like I've enjoyed dating you, but I'm going to, we're going to move on with different people. And he was like, no, yeah, you can reverse them. He kind of looked into it, told me about it. And I was like, awesome, let's just do that. We'll do that. That sounds fine. And we just moved forward, got married, and then we were separated for a year. So we obviously weren't trying or pursuing any type of reversal or pregnancy for about a year. And just to kind of fast forward that timeline, we were reunited again and now we're living here in California. And um, my husband goes to finally get that ball rolling to get the reversal procedure. And then the doctor that does it is now deployed. So he's gone for nine months and then he has a waiting list when he comes back. So oh, wow. yeah. let me let me just uh, out of curiosity stop you there. So in in your case, you know, being that the doctor is military, there's only like one doctor that could do this. Essentially, so yeah, I mean in our case, yes. Okay. Because of where we're at, you have to kind of stay in network of here. So even if there's a doctor on the East Coast, for example, the military is not going to fund my husband going to the East Coast for the surgery. Okay. And then they're not going to grant him permission to go to like a civilian doctor. So he's kind of strapped into 
this is the doctor that can do it. He'll be back in nine months. If you don't like it, like it kind of sucks because that's your option. <laughs> oh, wow. that That's crazy. You know what? Because I'm thinking for us that are just not military families, we get so stressed out about wanting to do everything quickly in the clinics and all this. And then you guys have that extra layer mm -hmm. of complexity. <laughs> yeah, it, I was not happy about it. But I mean, we kind of rolled with it. We were new to California and um, we were like, okay, this is just part of the timing. We'll enjoy life here, you know, get settled. My husband has a, a, a previous daughter and I have a daughter from a previous marriage. So it was just a good time to get settled, you know, and all, the, all that good stuff. So we waited for almost a year to get in and we finally got in and did the procedure February of 2019. And I won't get into like the over specifics of, of a reversal because it's just so complex, but um, they recommend after the surgery, you quote, like they call it clearing the pipe. So it's, they recommend that a man ejaculates about every two to three days because the vas deferens, which carries the sperm out can grow shut with scar tissue from the surgery. So they want that to stay open. And Additionally, I was ready to have a baby. And so we dove straight into trying to conceive. Like there was no, if it happens, it happens. I was using ovulation strips. I was checking my temperature every morning. Um, I was neurotic, like trying old wives tales. And we did that for three months. Just, it was to be honest, it was terrible. Like it was so much forced intimacy with my husband. <laughs> like I will be okay if we never do that again. Oh, it was just not fun. So we do that for about three months and my husband goes in for his first semen analysis and we get the results the next day, just paper results. This isn't like a call from a doctor or anything, just paper results and they're not good. But we, oh. we don't know what that means. You know, we, or we know it's bad we got on Google and kind of Googled some of them, but we don't know, can we fix it? What are our options? What do, what do we do? So we're back on the military timeline again. It took us three more months. So six months total just to get back in with the urologist to discuss those results. And man, that was, it just sucked. It was last summer and it was, a very solemn time around our household because we didn't know if we were going to be able to get pregnant on our own. Google was telling us we couldn't, but Google's not a doctor, you know? Um, <laughs> but you know what, Sydney, it seems like Google uh, drives part of our subconscious nowadays. Oh, you yeah. know, we put so much into it. Definitely. And it was just not a great time in our house. Um, my husband and I were very quiet. We were pretty withdrawn. And I don't know if it's from months and months of that, like forced intimacy, whether it was actually trying to time it around ovulation peaks, or if it was trying to follow the doctor protocol of like making sure his, you know, pipes, quote unquote, stay clear. But we were just, I think we were both also mourning in a way and trying to cope. And uh, I, I actually got a therapist just for a little bit there because I needed to vent about the process, but I didn't, I didn't want to make my husband feel more guilty than he probably already did feeling like he couldn't give me this child or this baby that I desperately wanted. 
Um, so we finally get in with the urologist and he explains, okay, you, you have some sperm present, so that's good. But unfortunately they have like what is present. There's no motility. The few that have motility, they're basically not going anywhere. Um, he thinks that we were dealing with scar tissue that had grown up into the vas deferens, which that's a, it's a common, common issue with reversals. So it's not abnormal by any means. And it was my biggest fear from the beginning. And yeah, he said, your chances of getting pregnant on your own, probably never going to happen. <laughs> and he said, just go, you, need, you guys need to go to an infertility specialist. They can help you. Here's your referral. So we got referred to another military treatment facility and we had to wait a month to get in with them. But I was like, oh, a month's not bad. We can do that. We go to that first appointment and we find out that the wait time with them to just even start the process, like start the retrieval, like the egg retrieval and start testing and things like that, it was going to be another six to nine months. <laughs> so, Oh, no. I, yeah, did, I would go crazy. <laughs> I, yeah, I left the appointment just brokenhearted because here we are. We wanted to have another baby before my husband turned 45 and he was going to be turning 45 that next year. And, and ideally we wanted two more, not just one. And, but our hard cutoff was 45. So I just felt, you know, that, that biological clock was just in my face. You know, you, you guys have to hurry up. Um, so I, I actually ended up calling a private clinic and I talked about pricing with them and the timelines of everything. And I, I was switched within two weeks over to a private clinic at that point. And that's kind of how we dove into it. And, and it was a really straightforward process with that clinic. I got pregnant the, at our first transfer. We had one egg retrieval. And that part of it was really straightforward. But getting there took, you know, two and a half, almost three years. Just oh, to <laughs> Lots of patients. So, okay. So you got to a private clinic. And that clinic... Um, did you have to travel? Because I know in this fertility, a lot of women travel to other states or was it local? They were local, fortunately. here Out here in California, we have clinics all over the place. Um, you know, unlike where my hometown is in Wichita, Kansas, there are no fertility clinics. You have to travel up to Kansas City, which is on the Missouri border. Um, unlike here, I only had to drive 30 minutes to our clinic. Yeah, that's okay. Perfect. That at least you had that convenience. And so tell us a little bit about the part. Okay, so you're in the private clinic. And how how many eggs did you have retrieve? Yeah, so we had 47 eggs retrieved. Um, even though we got pregnant with my clinic the first time, and, and I, I do speak highly of my clinic, but this was kind of my first like, I should have probably been a better advocate for myself because I was fighting through the OHSS, which is the ovarian hyper stimulant syndrome. Mm -hmm. And I was in a lot of pain for days leading up to the surgery and then post-surgery. It was, I mean, you know, you're taking an ovary that shouldn't really be stretched and I'm like, they're swollen and stretched and it was very painful. So I had the moderate OHSS, it's kind of a mouthful to say, and, um, but yeah, we got, we got 47 out of that. And then from there, 21 were 
successfully fertilized. And then we decided to do the genetic testing, which left us with 15. Sydney, so right now you have, uh, I guess, 14 frozen? Yes, we have 14 frozen. Uh, Wow, that is amazing. I actually was talking about this on the previous podcast that um, I was amazed at women, I guess, in this case, like you, that you're able to produce so many eggs and and have them and have so many fertilized because most of the times I hear the story that you get, yeah, 40 plus eggs, but then at the end of the day, I very little are able to go back to a normal embryo status. You know, I, I actually met two girls that had around the same number you had. And they had none left. Um, Can you imagine? It's terrible. Oh, yeah. Like it's, I mean, it's rough to try to get those high numbers because you're just in so much pain and you're risking kind of that, the OHSS. And then when we did it, my husband had given a sperm sample that they had frozen because basically my husband was producing like the heads of sperm, but they had no tails. So like we weren't really going to get pregnant on our own. They had a frozen sperm sample that they had thawed in order to fertilize the eggs. And then when I was in surgery, they had my husband go do another sample just because they knew our circumstances and they were worried initially. And then when I was in recovery, my husband's, you know, in there trying to be caring and sweet. Um, They came back and they said, hey, we still don't have enough. We don't have enough active sperm. Can you go do another sample? So it took my husband three samples to just get the heads that were good enough quality that they could, you know, inject one into each egg and go from there. So we, we really got lucky because at the time our doctor was panicked that we weren't even going to be able to fertilize enough of them. But Sydney, even in that case, you guys were super lucky because uh, the story in many clinics is, let's say in your situation, if if your husband doesn't have enough sperm to fertilize, it, I've heard of stories that they just tell them, hey, we're sorry, you're going to have to freeze eggs. But, you know, they don't even take the time to ask the husband, hey, can you do it a second time? You know, yeah, I, I would just so call it off. Yeah, very grateful. Um, so even though we had a few little hiccups with our clinic, but when I look at those, those moments, I'm so grateful that we had the team that we did, you know, they were fighting for it just as much as we were. And I think this part here is super important for if, if someone's listening and, and to this podcast and their husband has any type of sperm issue and they're going through a similar scenario like you. I would like them to get at least the one thing from this this podcast that make sure before you go or the day you go to the transfer or before you go to the tra- to um not the transfer the egg retrieval you advocate and ask if there is not enough don't call it off mm-hmm. you know ask for more because these are this is all happening in a matter of minutes mm-hmm. it's it, they don't have a lot of time to wait once they have your eggs to put them to fertilize. So it's so important that they prepare for this. I mean, you got super lucky, but this is a good example of things that we need to be super advocates before we go through them. 
it, and genuinely it, it was luck. Like the universe was on our side that day because I just jumped into IVF. Like I was so sick of waiting, you know, for military medicine to catch up with us that these are things I didn't even think of to ask. And so it's definitely one that should be added to, you know, if somebody's creating a list of things that they should ask a clinic, it should be on there because I would have had no idea to ask, well, what happens if <laughs> there's not enough sperm at the time to fertilize? Like I would have never thought to ask something like that, you know? No, and, and same here. I I mean, in my case, my husband did not have a problem, but you know what? I never thought about this scenario until mm -hmm. now that we're talking. It's it's just so many scenarios that it's it. I think it's it's healthier sometimes to not think about them because then you you add more stress. But in this case, uh, having you share this, I think is so valuable for anyone that has you know, male factor in, in the mm -hmm. equation. This is super helpful. Definitely, definitely. So, man, you have, okay, so you have 14 PGS tested. So you know the sex of all 14 embryos? We do. We have lots of girls. Really? <laughs> yes, we, ah. had, we had like nine girls. <laughs> oh, my goodness. How cute is that? So you are pregnant with your first from the IVF. So are you going to go for the second one right after? You know what? I I think I would like to. I I did not have a great experience with my first daughter. Um I was a really young mom and I I was still in high school and my parents sent me away actually to a maternity home. So I was alone. I gave mm. birth alone. Like I just I always pictured myself having more kids and so when I met my husband um I really thought we would have a chance at two more. Like I just saw that for myself but my husband hit 45 and my dad had children later in life as well. But in his cutoff was 45 for my sisters. Um, but my husband, he's kind of hinted. He's like, Oh, you know, you know, I ran into my buddy the other day and he's, he's 48 and they just had their third. So I think he's kind of dropping hints that if I would like to have another one, we could consider it. And I probably would. I, I wouldn't mind um, having one more to be honest. <laughs> Yeah, no, and I asked because I remember at the beginning you said that you would like to have at least two more. So yeah, uh, I thought, wow, you definitely don't have to worry about going through this whole egg egg retrieval and stimulation and anything at all. Yeah, we we would. It's kind of in my husband's court. I would like one more, but of course, you know he it, he's older than me, and so um, that's on him if he if he wants to try one more time. <laughs> no, that's, yeah, that's totally fair. So, okay. I mean, in your case, yeah, that's amazing that you have that. Now, when you, you didn't do a fresh transfer, right? No, because you did PGS, so you had to do frozen. Yes. Um, so how soon after, right after PGS results, you went for, for transfer or did you wait a little bit? So we had to wait, but it was because of my clinic. So we did our egg retrieval um, kind of the beginning to mid-November. I really wanted to do the frozen transfer in December. Um, but my clinic was, they were trying to get some construction stuff done. So they, they were not doing transfers. They were maintaining, you know, for egg retrieval, but they weren't adding kind of to the to the list because of the construction that was happening um, on top of the fact it was Christmas. 
So we waited until almost the end of January. Again, that's like if somebody is creating a list of what they should ask at their first consult, this should definitely be on there because I didn't understand those timelines. Um, again, very naive of me. My, we were originally not going to do genetic testing because we kind of wanted to save money. Um, but my doctor really convinced me, you guys should do genetic testing. He recommends it. And so we did it. And I didn't, I didn't fully understand that that meant um, everything was going to kind of be on hold for a while. Uh, like it makes sense because they had to test them. I just wasn't putting two and two together initially. And I really wish it would have happened sooner. So if you're going in for that consult and you want to do that, the genetic testing, and then, you know, obviously have a frozen transfer after really get on the same page with them that this is when you want it to happen because they initially told us, Oh yeah, you could maybe do it as early as December. Um, but it didn't quite work out that way. So add that, add that to the list of things to make sure you're on the same page with your clinic on. On the timing. Yes. And, yep. and to, and, uh, <laughs> you reminded me when you said that you didn't really understand how it would reflect on the timing because I don't know if it happened to you, but it happened to me that when I went for the egg retrieval, all that time preparing for egg retrieval and all that. And, you know, I wake up, I remember the first thing I asked was how many, mm -hmm. you know, how many eggs. And then that was it. When I heard the number, I didn't have that many. I had 16 retrieved, but I was, I was super happy with the number and I was happy that I was feeling good. I woke up super fast and I left the clinic and then it hit me that, wait, hold on. Okay. I got 16. Now you're telling me I have to wait three days to know how many survived or, or how many got fertilized and then wait to see how many made it to day five or six and then wait to know how many got PGS tested. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. wow. That was like the worst time for me. The stress level, it just hit me so strong. And I, in a way, I'm thankful I didn't know. Like I, I was, again, like you, naive about it. Um, but it was probably the worst time. And I, I, I just, I yeah. Not understanding that whole thing is crazy. And it's comical to look back on because I'm like, how did I not understand that? How did I not realize I was going <laughs> to be waiting more for those results and then for the transfer? Because obviously they couldn't test them and get the results back fast enough to do a fresh transfer. But I just was not aware. Like I just, I think I was so excited to finally be doing this that I just threw all caution to the wind. And I was like, okay. And then, and then to wait, it just felt like, oh, that was, that was a long wait. That was a hard, rough few weeks, you know, waiting to get all of those results back. And oh, yeah. oh my goodness. That that's, I think that is, you know, I had a friend ask me cause she's considering IVF and, and she's like, what do you think it's been the worst part so far? You know, I haven't done a transfer yet. I'm prepping for one for my first oh. one, but yeah. So I, I told her, look, I haven't done the whole thing, but I can tell you it's, I always, I was always scared of the medicine part of the stimulation and getting, mm -hmm. 
uh, hyper stimulated and all these things. But at the end of the day, I think the worst part was just waiting to know how many made it to day five, how many made it. In our case, we had to wait to day six and they called us and it was a mistake and they told us none of them survived. Can you imagine? Oh, I would have lost it. And then I got like a crazy maniac on the phone and then they put the the head of embryology and then they said, oh, wait, no, I'm so sorry. You're you're a different one. Yours are day six. I was like, oh, it, it was just chaos. And I think that's been just the worst part ever. Yeah. I, I do agree with that. I think the anxiety around the egg retrieval is probably the worst part. Just emo- maybe emotionally it is. You know, you're, I think the egg retrieval is probably the most uncomfortable in general. I really did not like the stimulants, but that waiting to find out, because like you said, there, there are still women that get 47 eggs or, you know, high numbers that end up with none. And because I didn't really know what we were working with, with my husband, like, I was, I was afraid. I was, I was genuinely scared. <laughs> no, completely. So, okay. And then when you finally got to transfer, how was your transfer? Like what protocol did they put you in more or less? So <laughs> I didn't, you know, the whole time because we, I just really didn't have any like female factor complications. My protocols were always very straightforward. I did the initial Lupron, like the birth control and Lupron. I switched then to estrogen, like the estradiol pills. And I took those three times a day. And then let's see. Yeah. And then I added in the PO, the PIO. So the progesterone and oil shots. And then we also did progesterone suppositories and then the five day steroid leading up to transfer. So those were the meds I was on. Um, I, I personally, and I maybe shouldn't admit this, I ended up kind of backing off of the suppositories because after transfer and after we had, you know, a confirmed positive, I kept having bleeding. Like when I would be walking around or going to the grocery store and I kept going into the clinic and they would do an ultrasound looking for like blood clots because that's another thing. Like you can potentially, or at least women that go through IVF have a higher risk of blood clots. They typically will resolve themselves, but they kept, that's what they kept looking for and they weren't finding anything. And again, I found myself back on Google trying to figure out like, what is this? Cause it's stressful. Even though the doctor kept saying, Oh no, it's fine. It just happens. We're not seeing anything concerning. It's fine. Um, I, I did not want to be bleeding cause I couldn't relax. I, I was having a hard time kind of mentally attaching to the pregnancy because of it. And I got on Google and I was reading that sometimes those suppositories really irritate the cervix. And so I, I personally ended up backing off of them, not immediately, but I kind of gradually stopped doing them three times a day. Um, and I got down to one and the bleeding stopped once I did that. So that was kind of my own personal protocol that I had to change. Um, because I just think it was the texture maybe of them or something was really irritating my cervix when I was up and walking and trying to be active with kids and things like that. That's a great tip. Um, so for the, for those suppositories, were you doing the gel or the pill? I did the pill. I didn't, I okay. didn't do the gel actually. <laughs> yeah. You know, I tried the, the, the pill when I was doing IUIs 
And it just drove me crazy. And Mm -hmm. every single time I would get a yeast infection. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It was horrible. And then I did the gel for my mock cycle because I did a ERA test uh, to Mm -hmm. prepare for the transfer. And I used for the first time the gel and it was like a complete change. It's so much better. I mean, it still gets messy, but not even as much as the pill. Yeah, I felt like the pill was almost um, like, you know, they are messy and you have to wear a pretty thick pad with them. But I almost felt like it was like chapping my skin. Yeah. Like it, the, yeah, they were really bad. So if my husband agrees to a second one, there are little things like that that I'm going to ask for to be different. I also think I'm going to ask in the future if we do it again for the estrogen patches instead of the, the pills. Um, because, you know, when you work 40 hours and like you're juggling kids and stuff, trying to go, oh my gosh, I need to, I need to get that pill in right, right now. Like it's, it, I just found myself all over the place with my estrogen pills. And I think in the future, I'll probably request the patches instead. Yes, a lot more comfortable. And then you just have to change them every other day. So mm-hmm. you don't have to do so much work for that. Yeah, definitely. That's awesome. And then, um, so you didn't do an ERA, right? I don't so, think so. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Cause that's. No, and then, like you said, in your case that you haven't had any other, um, you never had miscarriages before or early losses or anything, right? Um, I had had a previous miscarriage years and years ago. Um, but I mean, it was so early. Like it was, I literally took a test and I was at a doctor to get it confirmed like three days later. And, um, when they were doing the sonogram, they were like, I'm not seeing anything. And he was like, I think, I think you're about to miscarriage. And sure enough, literally 24 hours later. So it was a very, very early loss. To be honest, if I hadn't tested early, they probably would have said it was just a chemical pregnancy or something. Mm, Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I was curious because usually the ERA, they... You know, if you've had any miscarriages before or, or constant chemical pregnancies or something like that, they usually mm-hmm. recommend that. Um, so I was just curious. Yeah, the only thing we did was um, a sedated hysteroscopy. My doctor likes to do them sedated. I think other doctors will do like a saline ultrasound. And then if they think they found something, they then do a surgery. Um, my doctor prefers to just sedate and go in and do it. And they, they did find a polyp when they did that and they just, you know, removed it. And I mean, I felt fine. I didn't have any restrictions or I went, I just went right back to normal life right after that. So. Okay. So that was also, and you did that before the egg retrieval? I did it after. So after it's the, the first clinic that we went to the military clinic they like to do all of the testing, including the saline ultrasound and all that good stuff. They like to do it before you even get started. Um, my doctor, I think I was just like, I want to get started right now. Like, I think he just kind of let me (laughs) dive in and he said, okay, well, we'll get, I was moving so fast on the initial timeline. He's like, okay, I think let's just get you on this, get the eggs retrieved. And then we can perform the hysteroscopy before we even start your transfer, which, so I did it, uh, like four days before I was supposed to start transfer meds. 
Mm. Oh, that's good. Yeah, yeah, so it was fresh. Yes, yeah. And then did you have any specific um, things that you did to prepare for the transfer? Like, uh, did you eat the pineapple? Did you eat, I don't know if you heard about the yeah, yeah. the fries from McDonald's. I, yes, yeah. I, <laughs> all those know, things. Um, somebody will probably not appreciate me saying this, but I came home and had a glass of wine. Oh, I just, that's so cool. <laughs> I, you know, leading up to the transfer, I had my patient calendar on my refrigerator, but I I never had a countdown like, oh, we have 45 more days or 30 days, or I only have eight more shots. Like I never put a countdown on myself. Um, I put my patient calendar on the fridge and I color coded things just I color coded like when meds would change or I needed to stop or increase them because otherwise I would forget and I would miss it. Um, but other than that, I would just mark that one day off. I, I would force myself to not even look at the next day. So it was really day to day. So by the time I actually got to the transfer, I remember I went in for my last ultrasound and the tech said, all right, well, we'll see you after transfer. Good luck. And I was like, what? No, I have, I have, enough, I have like two more ultrasounds before I come in. She's like, nope, nope, this is last one. You're you're doing it next week. And it blew my mind because I had really taken it day by day. That was my goal. And it helped me stay pretty calm. And then even leading up to that, I didn't make drastic life changes. I I mean, I like to think I'm already pretty healthy. I don't I don't have like a crazy lifestyle by any means, but um I know and I've seen a lot of women that get on like crazy fertility diets and they really restrict themselves. And I just kind of wanted to live in the moment per se. I kept telling myself at the end of this, I'm going to be pregnant. Like that was my mindset the whole time. I will be pregnant. And if I'm going to be pregnant at the end of this, I it's going to be almost a year before I can have wine and sushi again. So I'm going to eat the sushi. <laughs> like I just didn't restrict I tried to live, you know, how I would live my life per se. And I was really easy on kind of my spirit at that time. So if I came home from work and I was having just anxiety through the roof, um, I, I put myself first, you know, and sometimes that's hard when you have a family and a husband, but I did leading up to that transfer. And even shortly thereafter, I a hundred percent took care of myself first and it felt selfish at first. But in the end, I think that's just what I needed. There were nights I'd tell my husband, I'm not cooking. I'm, to be honest, I'm not that hungry. So if you guys want to eat, order food, I'm going to go take a bubble bath and I'm going to go to bed at eight o'clock because that's just what I needed. I rested and I just took care of my needs leading up to that. And my husband was very supportive of that. So it really worked out. Um, and that was kind of my own personal protocol. I went into it really relaxed, you know, instead of, I wanted to keep my anxiety down. I wish I had done acupressure or like an acupuncture appointment before, but I just, with work and stuff, I didn't have time, but I did get in with my chiropractor right before. Um, and that was kind of the most invasive thing I did other than I would binge watch some movies. Cause I just wanted to stay really relaxed going into it. And then right after it. And 
in that note, on that note of being relaxed, so when you got the transfer done, did you stay in bed for a few days or did you just continue like normal? Um, my doctor recommends three days, ideally one, but he wants you to take it easy for three. Um, so I did. And on day five, I'm, I mean, yeah, so day five of transfer, my mom actually came to town. And we just took a girl's trip out to Catalina Island, which is off the coast here in California. It's just like a quick boat ride. Um, and I, we did just my mom and I in like a girl's trip for a week. And that then kept me busy waiting for my, my first blood test. Oh, that's so, that was perfect. Did you plan it like that or did it just happen to be on those weeks? It just kind of happened. Um, I was getting a little bit anxious um, knowing I was going to have to wait again after the transfer, all this waiting. And, uh, I called my mom and I was like, I know you're busy, but do you think you could come to town and just hang out with me? I'm going to take a week off work. And she did. And, um, she was like, what should we do? And I just kind of got online. I was like, well, let's, let's just go to Catalina Island. And so I, I left my family (laughs) and my mom and I just went and we ate good food and we went kayaking and just enjoyed nature. And we took a few nature tours and it was just kept my mind busy instead of stressing about the what ifs. And then you were lucky also that uh, I, I guess by that time, you the coronavirus restrictions were not kicking in yet, right? Yeah, there were none. I don't we really didn't get hit with any like restrictions until March. I think we were starting to hear about it in the news, but like my clinic and stuff didn't shut down until March. So yeah, we were, we were living very blissfully unaware of what was about to happen. (laughs) When you, before a little bit ago, you mentioned your mindset was just to be, you know, to keep yourself as relaxed and look after you. What did, did you do anything specific throughout this whole journey to help your mindset? I mean, this sounds probably negative, but I just, I was just kind of selfish during the time. Um, and I kind of already mentioned, like if, if I wanted to go to bed at eight o'clock, I would, because I just was trying to take care of me and myself. And luckily I, my husband is very supportive. He's great with kids. Like he understood there wasn't ever like this struggle, you know, on that front. But, um, that was really it. I journaled a lot. I put together a playlist that had, you know, various songs that I felt like really, emphasize what I was feeling. And that's what I listened to all the time. Um, and I just really listened to what I felt like my, my body was telling me, Hey, you need this to relax or let's do this or let's go eat this. Like I just gave into those (laughs) desires, I guess. And, and it was just to kind of keep myself relaxed because I did not enjoy the egg retrieval process. And I didn't like where my head was at during that. I was very kind of negative during that. And I, I had this like, oh, I just want to get this over with when it first, when I first ended the egg retrieval, I was upset that I had to wait, you know, another two months for the transfer. And I was like, oh, I just want to get this over with. I'm so sick of all this medicine. Um, But that downtime actually kind of forced me to reflect and go, hey, you're, 
you're about to get pregnant. Like I switched my mindset to, I'm going to be pregnant at the end of this and you're about to be pregnant. So get it together and stop hating this journey so much. And that mindset really, I think, helped me going into it. Yeah, I'm thinking while while you're saying that, and that's such a key. That's almost like um, everything combined in one. You know, if you want to take affirmations, visualization, all those kind of things, they're combined in that statement. You know, I'm gonna be pregnant. It, there's no other option um, because then we have all these ifs in our head, and I think that's when the anxiety kicks in. But in your case, if you know if you went right for the thought that you will break, you will be pregnant. Like there was no other if then that's mm -hmm. the mindset where we hopefully should all be by the time we're doing our transfer. It's just, you know, difficult. Yeah, but. You know, I, in that mindset of like, I will be pregnant. I never put like a timeline on that. I never said, okay, it, I will be pregnant maybe not this time, but next time, like to me, it was just, I will always be pregnant. We, we will attack this monster until I'm pregnant. And we were extremely lucky that it was the first try. Like, you know, as grateful as I am for that, sometimes I even feel a little guilty about our story because I'm like, man, I, I follow some amazing IVF warriors that have literally been doing this for years and have had so many failed cycles or miscarriages. And here we are first try like that that's sometimes a hard it's almost like survivor's guilt a little bit you know like why did we have it so easy um when there's probably much more deserving people that even probably take it more serious i we it's not that we didn't take it serious but i just i see some people that are so ocd like with their meds and very type a and i just kind of was like eh, gotta get my meds today <laughs> like <laughs> taking it day by day like it, you know i just had probably more of a relaxed approach to the transfer than, than some women that have been at it for years and years. So it's, it was interesting for sure. Yes, that definitely helps. Um, now I wanted to ask you going back to the part of the embryos that you have left, because I mm -hmm. know everything is, I always say in this IVF thing, it's like we make decisions as the day comes mm -hmm. and we usually don't think of all the scenarios, but at this point where you are, that you are pregnant and you have 14 embryos left, what have you discussed with your husband? Like what, what do you plan to do? How do you see the embryo situation? I know many women now are, doing embryo adoption, other women just keep them there. Uh, have you had any chance? You don't have to answer because this is a very personal thing and maybe you haven't discussed it, but anything you, you, you think about this subject? So we have actually. Um, we aren't comfortable destroying them. And as of right now, we aren't totally comfortable with adopting them either. So I think for the foreseeable future, and I would say probably next five or so years, we'll probably continue to store them. Um, I am not opposed to embryo adoption, though. Um, 
I had mentioned earlier, I had my first daughter very young. And when I was initially pregnant, I did pursue an open adoption initially. And so I kind of am familiar and I remember those feelings about the, the idea of adoption and how sweet those gifts and those moments are. Um, so I'm really not opposed to it. This go around, though, the only difference is when I was preparing for an adoption of my daughter, which, you know, I, I didn't end up going through with. But when I was preparing for that, she was my daughter, but it's like the her dad wasn't really in the picture. And so it just it felt a little bit different versus now. The only thing that kind of gets me is this is my husband and I's DNA. It's not just my DNA or my egg or this is, you know, me and my spouse. And so I, it feels a little bit different, but I think as the years go by, especially after this baby's born and maybe another, and I get to see who they are and how much joy it's brought. I, I do think I'll move towards the adoption side of things. I think my husband's kind of, he just, I think he would be fine with it too. You know, it's something that we want other people to experience, you know, I have, I have, I have a friend actually that's um, in a vasectomy reversal situation of her own. And I was like, yeah, if you have the chance to do IVF, yes, it's hard, but it's worth it. And then, you know, to be able to give somebody a gift where if it hasn't worked for them and we give them our embryos, like I, I would feel really good about that, to be honest. And, and you'll see when you start to listen to the first, op uh, once I published the first episode, and, and this is a personal thing, but for me, that's, that's just probably the most important part, after, of course, after getting finally pregnant is that decision, you know, what do you do if, if you're one of those that has any embryos left? Uh, it's such a tough one. It's incredibly tough and there is no right answer, you know, because there's so many things that play into it, your feelings or your religion or your age. Mm -hmm. In my case, you know, I don't have, I only have three embryos, but if I had more, it would be tough because I'm not in an age where I could just say, oh my God, I'm going to have six kids, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So... Yeah, it's such an important and difficult decision, but it's amazing to have also the opportunity to give that gift to somebody else. Oh, definitely. It definitely. And I even though I don't feel like I'm there right now, I just think here in a few years I could just never see myself just kind of throwing them away. It's like not only did so much work go into them, but it's just this combination of you and your spouse somewhere. And it, it's just, um, we have documentation that like, if something happens to us, like we have family members that can take care of them, but you know, they have to make the decision then. And we've requested that they be donated at that point. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a, I don't think people realize going into IVF, you're going to have to make those decisions. It's an interesting conversation to have with your spouse, for sure. Like when they sent the paperwork over. <laughs> yes. Like, oh my gosh. <laughs> right? Is that, that's the moment where it hits you. When we got all those forms online to sign, we're like, wait, what? We yeah. have to decide this now? <laughs> yes. And like, yeah, because then you even have scenarios of like, well, what, what would you do if your, your spouse dies? Who gets them? 
And uh, my husband was like, well, I want them if you die. And I was like, well, I don't want you to have them with someone else. (laughs) Oh, my God. That sounds just like us. And Did your form have the option that says uh, who keeps them if you get a divorce? You know, I think it did, and I don't even remember what me we put. Me neither. I don't remember what we put. I, it, to me, everything is like it never happened, but I know we signed them. Yes. But I, yeah. <laughs> it's like one of those things that you're like, okay, so who is supposed I mean, obviously, nobody wants to get a divorce, but all mm-hmm. these decisions, it, it's just crazy how it's, it's good to go in into the process with that unawareness. But it, it's also something that you're thinking, man, I wish somebody told me so I could have given being or at least being a little bit more prepared to make that decision when I had to make it, you know? Yeah, I. it's interesting because I don't know if it is better to be unaware. You're just kind of blissfully unaware and <laughs> gliding through the process. And then and then you're just kind of dodging the curveballs as they're thrown at you versus trying to brace for the impact. I. I mean, I made a lot of mistakes in my IVF journey and it and it just so happened to work out. I mean, by pure universe decided it was going to be okay. But like even with our the frozen embryo transfer, when I mentioned that earlier, like I wasn't understanding like the wait times and things. I also did not know at the time that my clinic charges for a frozen embryo tra- transfer. So I want to say it was like a week before we were supposed to start transfer meds. The accounting department called me and let me know that I needed I needed to get the cycle like that transfer paid for. And I was like, "What are you talking about?" Oh and no! Sure enough, they charged like another fifteen hundred dollars, I think it was, for a frozen transfer. So I, I like to think somebody that's thinking about going through IVF is like making a list of, of things to ask. That was another one that. I know some clinics include one frozen transfer. Our clinic did not. Luckily, they did waive the fee for us because um, I saved all of my paperwork from my first appointment and I was never given a cost sheet. Like it just, honestly, it was a mistake. Somebody forgot to give it to me. Um, And I scanned it all to them and all of my notes. I took a bunch of handwritten notes. I scanned it all over and I was like, this was never discussed. Um, And I, again, I got lucky that they were like, okay, we're just going to waive it this time. Um, but yeah, like if it, during your consult, that's a huge thing to ask your doctor is about that frozen transfer. Do they charge for that? Or is that going to be included, you know, in your, in your package in your IVF package? So yeah, I made lots of little mistakes. <laughs> nah, but we all do. This is just, I uh, and, and, and you would think, okay, let's say, let's put up a, a checklist of all the things. But at the end of the day, every clinic is so different the way they do things. Mm-hmm. In my case, they include the transfer, but they have this really weird thing where the lab work, they only include one lab work in the mm-hmm. package. I'm like, why would you do one lab work when you know that's all we do is give blood? all the time and then you have to then add the other layer that okay now you know you're responsible for certain labs but then they put hormones and other markers in those lab works that not always are necessary Mm -hmm. 
And then you end up getting a surprise bill. I got one two days ago, completely unexpected for $700, you know? Mm -hmm. I'm like, what are you talking about? Didn't I pay already? It's like the whole financial part, it's it's the other part of the equation. And you're like, man, why is it such a mission? It is. And I kind of explained it because I I have kind of a, I have a blog that I'm like semi-active on, but I'm not an active blogger, if that makes sense. Um, But I, I outlined our journey and that was something I actually talked about is IVF is frustrating in itself because you can get online and try to read about it and you can understand the basics of what IVF is. They're going to take an egg, they're going to put, mix it with your spouse or your donor sperm, and they're going to put it back. That's kind of the gist of IVF. But um, the financial side of IVF is like Pandora's box. It is never ending. And you're in kind of limbo with your clinic because even though your clinic is there to help you and they want to see you succeed, they're also there to make money. And Mm -hmm. it's hard to navigate the advice that they're giving you. Are they telling you to do this protocol or do this treatment or what have you because it's truly for your betterment or because it's an extra, like you said, $700 in their pocket. It's not like IVF is not like getting your tonsils taken out where you're going to go in, your doctor's just going to take it out and that's the end of it. And you can't base it on somebody else's experience because we're all doing IVF for different reasons. So what it's really like the blind leading the blind. Sometimes you're just guessing at what your clinic is recommending versus what other women are doing versus what's your budget. Like it's, oh man, it's, it, it's nerve wracking. Cause you never know you'll open the mail and you have another bill. It is, it is. And at least one thing I want to add here is don't be, I, I mean, this is where I am right now. I am not shy anymore mm-hmm. to question everything. Because I can't keep getting these surprise bills every time. And mm-hmm. it's got to the point that I every time they're going to take blood out, I'm like, show me in the screen that you're seeing what lot work are you running? Because right mm-hmm. now I only need these two things. And every time that I check, they have other hormones in there. And I'm like, okay, if there's more hormones in there, I want you to call my nurse. Uh, my mm-hmm. doctor's nurse, and I want her to come here and tell me why I need those hormones. Yeah, and then they have to call her. She has to come to the lab part, and she has to explain to me. And believe it or not, eighty percent, or I would say ninety percent of the times, she agrees that I don't need all those things, and I only need, let's say, estrogen and one more thing. And I'm like, can you imagine? This is where I have to and. My clinic, it's one of the best ones here in Florida, and they have everything pretty uh, process-oriented. But it doesn't mean that they, like you said, that they're not there to do money. It's just not acceptable. So now I know they probably don't like me a lot in the lab (laughs) because I'm questioning everything. But you know what? I'm not ashamed anymore. because I Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. And I think when we all start this process, we're all so, we have baby brain. We're so desperate to get pregnant that in the beginning, we're just doing what the doctor says. And then you get a little bitter and you kind of have a love hate relationship with your clinic because 
in the end, they, they have to make money. They are there to make money. They are there to help you, but ultimately they're there to also make money. And, um, yeah, advocating is huge and it's really hard to figure out how to advocate for yourself in the medical world because we're not doctors, you know, so we're not quite sure. (laughs) Yeah. It's just, I, and I do, I have a love hate relationship with my clinic. I adore them because of the journey and the process, but yeah, I had to fight several battles with them along the way. Like, why are we doing this? Or why, for example, now knowing what I know now, I, I really did not need to hyperstimulate for my egg retrieval the way I did. I didn't have any female factor complications that warranted the high dose of stimulants I was on. Um, And and ideally that could have gone bad. I could have had to go in and have my abdomen drain because I had so much fluid retention. And um, I learned later about like what natural IVF cycles are. So it, it, it's like such a small scale and ideally, maybe that's what we should have done. I, I don't know. But I, I learned after the fact that I didn't have to just go along with everything my doctor said. And I feel like people learn that during the egg retrieval. <laughs> and then they're more, you know, mouthy about their needs and desires towards the transfer for sure. Yes. And I hope that that is what we create here you know that's one of the strongest reasons I had to start this podcast which I hope people will find useful is Mm -hmm. to share this story so that we learn through each other's story and then we can advocate for ourselves when we go to these clinics of course everybody's situation and scenarios are different but there is so much we need to know and and understand and just educate ourselves. If if we don't do it, nobody will. Mm-hmm. And one thing that I always stress out with my friends when they're asking me, hey, should I start IVF? I'm like, look, whatever you decide, if you do decide to start IVF, please be aware that this is not free, which means if you're paying thousands of dollars for this, you have every right to question everything. Mm-hmm. This is not a gift someone gave you and you're just taking it. And, you know, even a gift, sometimes you can question, but like, you know, something that you just completely trust. I know you have to trust your doctor and kind of rely on them because they're the experts, but there is room for questioning mm-hmm. and for working things out with the clinic if they're not done the way you want them to be done. So a little question, like, point for if somebody's taking notes here um we were lucky and our embryologist side of our clinic called us and gave us updates on the embryos at each stage however i have seen some other couples that they don't get any results they don't know any of their numbers until like after the genetic testing and so i couldn't imagine waiting that long No, no, that's just unacceptable completely. Yeah. And so yeah. that's definitely advocate for you. You want all the knowledge, you know, you call me, <laughs> tell me how many. And so just add that as a bullet point. If somebody's taking notes, like exactly informs you, you have, it's, it's your body and your materials and your stuff. Like call and tell me what's going on with my little in babies what's going on in there and you know so it's 
lots to learn and lots to share, I guess, from the I know I mean, we could keep talking and there's yeah. always so much, but uh, you've given us so many tips. So thank you so much uh, for everything that you've shared and all the notes that I hope people can take out of this, um, out of this podcast episode. And one last thing to close up, what would be your biggest piece of advice that you can give to anyone that's going to start IVF or is just in the middle of it? Yeah, so definitely advocating for yourself. Like, don't be afraid to advocate. And even if that means sharing with your spouse, like your concerns and bringing them to an appointment with you to help you kind of advocate, we're not doing this or we are doing this. You know, that's really big. Um, I have also already kind of mentioned the self-care and the focusing on yourself during IVF. It's, it's very easy to lose yourself in the throes of IVF because it is so it's busy. It's hard. Your brain is very focused on what you're doing, but on those rougher days, take the step back and, and, you know, get recentered with yourself. Date nights, bubble baths, yoga, journaling, a glass of wine, all of it, none of it, some of it, whatever works for you, you should do it. And then lastly, um, finding a support person. I know many of us probably have a lot of support in our spouse, but for me, I personally found a little bit of a better, I guess, space with my friends. I had two friends that I could call and just for hours, you know, dive over information and talk and talk and talk and talk. And it kind of helped me not put so much of a burden on my spouse because he obviously was concerned and stressed. And there's a lot that he can't, he can't fix the situation. He doesn't like giving me shots or seeing me in pain. And I didn't want to add to that if I didn't need to. And so having a support person or support people, maybe outside of your spouse that you can go to, it, it, it helps for those days where you're just like, oh my gosh, I can't, my husband doesn't want to hear one more time how much I hate these shots. So I'm going to call my girlfriend and talk about how much I hate these shots because she's my girlfriend and she's going to listen to me, you know, talk about this forever. So, you know, I just felt less guilty unloading my frustrations on my friends than my husband. So anyway, those I are think, my- Yeah, and that's great advice. Uh, the last, I mean, all of it, but the last part about trying to, uh, kind of leverage the burden of mm-hmm. this whole process with someone else other than your partner. It's a very important one. Um, you know, mm-hmm. they're going through it too. So they also need to be leveraged a little bit. We have to think about them as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so thank you so much, Sydney. Yeah. This has been a great, great podcast. And I wish you the best. I hope to see pictures of the baby, uh, mm-hmm. you know, in Instagram and get to know him a little better is it a well you don't know yet do you know if it's a boy or girl yep he's a boy (laughs) oh boy see i kept saying boy and i didn't know okay so congratulations and i'm gonna include your instagram handle in the show notes in case anyone wants to go in instagram and follow sydney uh (laughs) that's where you can find her and thank you again and i'll stay in touch yeah thank you so much for having me this was This has been a joy to just kind of share and hopefully help somebody else out along the way. So thank you so much. No, thank you. And talk to you soon.
All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you so much for joining us this week on the Infertility Makeover Podcast. Make sure to check the show notes for details on anything that we've talked about during this podcast. Be sure to check out my website at andreachincora.com where you can subscribe to the show to make sure you never miss one. And while you're at it, if you found value in this show, it would mean the world to me if you can give me a good rating or if you would simply tell a friend about the show, that would help me a lot too. If you like this show and you want to check out my signature program, the IVF Booster, um, please go ahead. You'll find this in my website. This program is designed to help you increase the chances of a successful IVF by aligning your mind with your body using a hypnotherapy technique. Be sure to tune in next week for our next episode. And remember that their story can be yours.